0: John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. We are getting close to the end. got one more chapter to go. We'll be done with John and I have no clue what we're going to do next. That's all up in the air. Alright, let's read. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that day is, what's the first day of the week back then? Sunday. Sunday. Uh, So that Sunday evening, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples... Now this is the understatement of the year, right? The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Um, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we'll stop right there, and then we'll continue reading a little bit later. So, let's, let's kind of reset the scene, uh, as we do pretty much every week, to make sure we know where we are. Uh, as we come to today's passage, Jesus, of course, has, has risen from the dead, right? Now, the, the evidence for the resurrection, when you really go back and look at it, and there's been whole books uh, written on this, but the evidence for the resurrection is, is, is pretty overwhelming. First and foremost... They get there, and the stone has been rolled away. Now, the reason this is significant is because John doesn't cover it, but other Gospels do. The fact is, the Jews took every precaution to make sure that did not happen. Because, you know, they understood, later on you'll see, uh, you go back and read the Jews, they knew what Jesus had said. They had heard what He had said, that you're going to kill me in three days, I'm going to rise again. They knew that. So they took every precaution to make sure that nothing happened to that body. Let's read from Matthew, I'll read from Matthew 27, 62 to 66. It says, on the next day, which, and this is just kind uh, kind of going to the side a little bit. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days, I will rise. Therefore command now notice what they called him. What did they call him? A deceiver. a deceiver. See, they fully expected he's gonna to try to de- somebody's gonna to try to deceive us. They that that was their impression of Jesus that he was a deceiver. Uh, they said, Sir, we remember how that when he was still alive that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So Pilate gave them a, a squadron or a, a, a some amount of, of centurions or Roman soldiers. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And uh, Matthew 28, 2-15 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The guard came back into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. So the Jews and the chief priest gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you... Secure. By the way, why were uh, the, the, what would have happened to the soldiers? They would have been killed immediately because they they, that was a dereliction of duty. They, they gave them a, an assignment, make sure nobody gets the body. The body's gone. <laughs> They're dead. So they obviously, uh, they notice they didn't go. Who did the soldiers go to? They went to the Jews. They didn't go to their commanders. They didn't go to Pilate. They went to the Jews. And the Jews said, let's just cover this thing up. Here's some money, and if the Romans, if, if, if Pilate hears about it, we'll, we'll make sure that everything's covered over. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So they on this uh, Sunday evening, as we start, the tomb is empty. The grave clothes lie undisturbed. The linen cloth is neatly folded in a place by itself. And the testimony of the angels even corroborate the fact that he is risen. You remember they told Mary Magdalene, what are you looking for? He's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. So he has done what he said he would do. He has conquered death. Now all of that would have been pretty good evidence that he rose from the dead. Um, uh, You know, all of that in itself would be proof toward the fact that he rose from the dead. But there's one piece of evidence that is beyond doubt and irrefutable, and that is, he appears bodily to human beings. He didn't just leave it alone and say, well, you know, the tomb's rolled away, the, the, the body's missing, the grave clothes are folded up, even the angels come down and announce he's risen. That's all good, but I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to make sure that people see me. And so he's already, by the time we come, we studied this last week, he's already appeared to Mary Magdalene. That's one person, but remember... By Jewish law, one witness is not enough, is it? You need at least what? At least two. So Jesus, it's not enough to appear to one person because under Jewish law, that's not enough. You have to appear to at least uh, two. So in order to announce His resurrection and authenticate it, if you go through and study the Gospels and put them all together, we find that Jesus appeared no less than eleven times to more than five hundred people. You want you want evidence? Alright, here's five hundred. Y'all come on in. Here's number one. I mean, can you imagine five hundred people strolling through the courtroom? Yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I saw him. Okay. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians fifteen, <coughs> three through eight, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen by Cephas or Peter. Then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Eleven different times Jesus appears, and over to over 500 people that end up uh, seeing him. Now again, I would dare say if you showed up in court, with over 500 witnesses, you'd think that would be enough to, to justify, I would say so. Now, the Jews say the, said the body was stolen, right? So, the Jews, that was their excuse, the body was stolen, but now the body never showed up. He showed up alive, so they had to come up with another theory to explain that um, away. And as I mentioned last week, skeptics came up with something called the swoon theory. And you can go Google this and and read up about it. In other words, what they said is that Jesus wasn't really dead. That when he was on the cross and, you know, he had endured all that beating and he endured all the, just the stuff that he went through, that he went into a coma. That he wasn't really dead, but he was in a coma. And then when they, they wrapped him up with all those spices and they put him in the tomb, he, he woke up. It, it revived him. And that's why, then he was, now, now somehow or another, <laughs> here he is wrapped up in this stuff. And, he, and let's just say he woke up. Let's just say the swoon theory was right. How does, that, how does a man, by the way, a man who was just in a coma, beaten to an, in, an inch of his life, hung on a cross, spear. how does that man spear yeah. in his side, mm-hmm. how does that man unwrap himself? Not only mentioned, if he unwraps himself, how in the world does he roll that stone away? Especially with this point of view, the stone is just a piece of flat rock. You have to be on the outside to never get yeah. the question away. In fact, you, you remember, we'll talk about this in a minute, you remember when the when the women come to the tomb, what's the question in their mind? How are we going to move the stone? And, and by the way, there was more than one of them. And they said to them, who's going to roll the stone away for us? We can't do it. How is Jesus in his state supposed to do it from the inside of the tomb? Um, The problem, by the way, with the theory is that there's monumental proof that he really was dead. Uh, The Roman soldiers, by the way, crucified people pretty much every day. That that was their job. That's what they did. And by the way, just as it was a dereliction of duty for that uh, body to disappear, it would be a dereliction of duty if you took a person down off the cross that wasn't dead. That was their job. You don't do your job, you know. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but it ain't going to be good. Um, so they, when they came to him to break his legs, they didn't break his legs. Why? Because he was. They saw, man, this guy's dead, and and not to mention the spear thrust into his side showed the fact when the water that had accumulated around his lungs and his heart spilled out with the blood, it showed the fact that the crucifixion has done it done its job. And by the way, even if it hadn't. The spear thrust up into the heart and lungs would have would have obviously killed him anyway. In addition, by the way, he comes down off the cross. Joseph and Nicodemus and probably some of the women at, that wrapped him. In, I mean, they if there was any sign at all that he was breathing, I mean, they would not have put him in that. It wouldn't have wrapped him in those spices, wrapped him in that stuff and put him in the... The tomb, and so again, if there was any possibility that he wasn't, how does a man in that state unwrap himself and move the stone? And again, Mark sixteen three, you can see the women, as they go to the tomb, are saying, "Who's going to roll away the stone? Because we can't do it. Not even two or three of us have, have got enough strength. How could Jesus do, did it? So there's just no question about the fact. To me, uh, it's pretty obvious that Jesus was dead when he went to that tomb. On Friday evening. Now here's something else that's really interesting to note, kind of a side note here. I mentioned earlier when you look through the Gospels, you'll see that he appeared about 11 times to over 500 people. This is a really, he never once appears to an unbeliever. Never once appears to an unbeliever. Doesn't go, you would think he would go to the Pharisees and say hey (laughs) I told you you bunch of dummies he never does. Just goes to believers. And by the way, um, uh, some of the skeptics, many s- skeptics say, see, that's a that they got a real problem with that. They say, obviously, if Jesus had really risen from the dead, he would have went to the Pharisees to show them, look, I told you. Um, so how would you answer that? Somebody tell me. It says in Proverbs that after a while, God just hands you over to your own. Oh, I forgot the word. Well, you thinking. Yeah. Somebody else. How would you say, why would Jesus not appear to skeptics? He not He not there They wouldn't believe him. Okay, they wouldn't believe him anyway. Anybody else? He doesn't care about what they think. Okay, he doesn't care about what they think. I think, you know, at the end of the day, by the way, keep in mind, we forget this sometimes, that even the believers were skeptics. None of them expected him to rise from the dead. Did, did, uh, did Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and the women expect him to rise from the dead? How do you know that? They wrapped him, the they wrapped him up tight in spices. The women were coming the next morning. What were they bringing? They were going to finish it. They had no expectation. Yes, he, but he, you know, he said he's going to do it, but they didn't, they didn't believe it. They, they, none of them, they, they were skeptics, weren't they? Um, so, again, they, they bound him. At, uh, Mary Magdalene, did she expect him to rise? When she saw the empty tomb, what's her first thought? They took him away. Where'd they take him? That was her first thought. She never expected him to rise from the dead. So, so even the people he appeared to aren't, aren't expecting him to be there. He appears in the room, and, and um, uh, Thomas says what? His brothers, all of his apostles, saying, "We've seen the Lord." What does Thomas say? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that. I won't believe, believe it he didn't believe. No, I'm telling you, they they were skeptics themselves. So the idea that they manufactured a resurrection is ridiculous. They weren't. They didn't even believe he would do. It's like they weren't saying, "Man, he said he was going to rise. We got to make it happen," so that we can go off and create this religion. No, they 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 were perfectly. Resign to the fact he's dead, let's get him buried, let's mourn, and move on. Where do we go from here? Um, so they were just as shocked when he appeared, and they doubted it was real. In fact, one time they even said, it's a spirit, it's a ghost. They had no, they had no clue that he was going to do that. So why didn't he appear to the scribes and Pharisees? Because here's the thing, that's never been the way it works, right? Miracles only enhance faith, they don't create it. Let me say that again. Miracles only enhance faith that's already there. Miracles never create faith. We, we all, you hear people say, oh man, if I just saw a man rise from the dead, I'd believe. And Jesus, remember the, the parable of the rich man in Lazarus? Luke sixteen thirty one. Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear scripture, they won't believe even if a man rises from the dead. The fact is, somebody said it earlier, if Jesus would have walked into the Sanhedrin and appeared after the dead, they still would not have believed he was God. Because miracles don't create faith. They only enhance a faith that's already there. The same is true uh, as today. So if Jesus had appeared to unbelievers, uh, there's an old saying in Proverbs, don't cast your pearl before swine. Everybody know that? That's exactly what he'd have been doing. It would have been a complete waste of time. To, to do that. They would not have believed it. Their minds were blinded by the God of this world. So Jesus only appears to believers. He only appears uh, to his own because he knows they're the key to everything that's going to happen in the next few months and the next few years. So he wanted to confirm them in their faith. He wanted to enhance their faith. Um, and they, he knew they needed to have confidence in a resurrected living Christ. So in all of his appearances, all those five hundred people, he appears only to uh, only to believers. Now, I mentioned earlier that if you go look at all the gospels, he appears about eleven times, but John only records three. Remember, John's very picky about what he does. Right? He's writing his gospel years later, after the other three—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—have already written theirs. He knows what they've written. He's well aware of it. I'm sure. And so he only picks out things that he wants to to tell or reflect on. And so in this case, when it comes to Jesus appearing, John picks out three. Picks out first one is Mary Magdalene, which we saw last week uh, when she came to the tomb on Sunday morning. And today we're going to see that he appears to the disciples one time without Thomas there. And then he's going to appear to the disciples again with Thomas there. Now Mary Magdalene again we covered last week. So in this week's passage, we'll look at the uh, other two. So let's start with verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and He stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, the doors are what? They are locked and barred. They are scared to death, right? They're not sitting there saying, Jesus is coming back. He's going to rise from the dead today. What they're thinking? We're dead. As soon as they catch us, they're going to kill us. Where do we go from here? My, I need to be fishing. I can't. I'm not making any money for my family. I can't. I mean, they're they're terrified. They are basically locked down. They have no idea uh, what to do. And by the way, their fear is completely understandable, right? I mean, they they're they they not they're not they don't have a fear that's not real. They, they have a real fear. And into that room, Jesus enters. Now, how did he get there? It's funny. If you go back and read some of this stuff on the Internet, it's just funny what people will say. Uh, the proponents of the swoon theory say that he climbed through a window or he, he slipped down from the roof. One commentator even said he, he actually had sneaked in before they locked the door and he was hiding. I mean, you just see crazy stuff. Uh, the Bible... Just says, Jesus came and stood among them. So whether he walked through the wall, whether he just appeared, uh, we don't know. We just know that he, was, uh, he didn't have to open the door. He was simply there. Now, let me point out a few things why this is important to us today. Notice three things. The doors are locked. The disciples are scared to death. And then Jesus comes and stands in their midst. And I want to point out three things that we can learn from this, that we can tell how Jesus, uh, the risen Christ, deals with us today. First of all, the doors are locked. Listen, when it comes to your life and my life, Jesus can still go where nobody else can go. Let me say that again. When it comes to your life and my life, Jesus can go where nobody else can go. He can go where no counselor can go. He can go where no doctor can go. He can go where no lover can go. He can go where nobody else can go when it comes to your life and my life. He can reach you, and He can reach into you places that nobody else can go to, right? There's there's no place where you are and no depth of personhood that you are, if I can say that that way, that Jesus can't get to. There's some of us that we've locked things away, you know, hurt or pain or, or shame or regret, and you lock it away, and even those closest to you don't know about it, but he does. And not only does he know about it, he can walk right into it. And so that, that locked doors, locked places in the heart, none of that is going to keep him out. Jesus' resurrection from the dead allows him to do what no one else can do. There's no one like him in the universe. He is alive, and he is the one and only God-man, and what he's capable of, you and I cannot even imagine. And it's a wonderful thing to think that in all these complex layers of your life and my life, uh, there is none of them off-limits to Him. None of it is off-limits to, to Him. Number two, they were afraid. Their leader has just been crucified as a threat to Caesar. In their minds, their lives are at risk and their fear is totally understandable. And Jesus walked right into the fear. Right into the fear. I point this out because isn't fear... One of the main reasons we need a living Savior today, there's not a one of us in here that don't struggle with fears of some, of some type. Fear that you won't be prepared for what I'm expected to do in the future. Fear of sickness. Fear of financial failure. Fear that my children will lose their faith. Fear of being alone. Fear that I won't have the faith to die well. Listen, fear is a constant companion to human beings. It, it, that's just a fact. And what Jesus does is he always comes to his own when they're fearful. In other words, he doesn't stand back and wait for you and I to get our act together and get rid of the fear. He doesn't sit back and say, what's wrong with y'all, man? I rose from the dead. What, what are you afraid of? No, he. our fear may be understandable or not understandable, but he walks right in and he goes to the fear. Does everybody see that? I, I just think that's really important. I, I mean, I know many of you have been Christians a long time and can testify to the same thing that I do, that that is still true today, that He is still doing that today He comes to you when you're afraid no matter what you're afraid of Um, there's a promise in Isaiah 41 10, God said this fear not, I am with you don't be dismayed, I am your God, I will help you that's exactly what Jesus is doing today, He's still fulfilling that promise, no matter what the fear is in our life, He comes right in The other thing Jesus did is he came and stood in their midst. The point here is that he doesn't stay afar off. He comes right into the middle of where you and I are. He wants us to see him and know him and believe in him and love him and relate to him. He wanted that for his disciples. You know, he could have easily been this resurrected God that they just worshipped from afar. But he he didn't do that, does he? He comes right into them. He wants to know us. He wants to walk. Look, that's what I put right here. He wants, to experience, he wants us to experience Him and to know Him right in the middle of life's issues and problems. He never said, I'm going to pull you out of these problems and everything's going to be rosy. You're going to, you're going to get sick just like unbelievers. You're going to get hurt just like unbelievers. You're going to walk through things just like unbelievers, but guess what? I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. I'll walk walk through it with you. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to be with you in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your trials, the way that no one else can. Now, that's the way that Jesus acts as a risen Savior. Now i want to look at what He says. And what you're going to see here is that in His first appearance to His disciples, He says three things, and these three things really turn out to be wonderful gifts, not only to them, But to us as well. And what he does is with his words, he gives them the gift of peace, the gift of power, and the gift of purpose. Now just think about this. The opposite of peace is conflict. The opposite of power is weakness. And the opposite of purpose is aimlessness. I mean, how many lives are ruined by those three things? By conflict, by weakness, and just aimlessness. Um, but Jesus came into this world and died again, uh, died and rose again to save lives, not ruin them. And what we will see is that he saves us from ruining our lives by becoming himself our peace, our power, and our purpose. So look at his words. The first words he tells to them when he walks in, he says, Peace be with you, verses 19 through 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where, Jesus were, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And he says to them again, Peace be with you. Okay, Somebody tell me, what does he mean? Don't be afraid? Don't be afraid? That's the obvious answer. Is there more to it than that, you think? Look what he does. He says to them, Peace be with you. Shows him his hands, shows him his side, right? And then he says again, peace be with you. Before, a couple things to point out. Before he says anything about power or purpose, Jesus always wants to establish peace. Peace is the foundation. Listen, if you don't have peace, you ain't got no power. If you ain't got peace, you ain't got no purpose. Peace is always where it starts. It's, it's, all, it's underneath of the empowered action or purposeful deeds. Look at, uh, look at uh, Ephesians 2, 13-16. Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility when Jesus walks in that room and says peace to you obviously he says don't be afraid have peace but what else is he saying don't fear death. huh don't fear death. the the opposite of peace is hostility Jesus is our peace why because He died. He paid the price. What are He saying right here in Paul? When Jesus died on that cross and He took those wounds in His hands and His side, He paid your sin debt. The wrath of God is removed. You have been reconciled to God. It's much more than, hey guys, don't be afraid, I'm here. He's saying, guys, before this happened, you were apart from God. You were under His wrath. There was a wall of hostility between you and God. Now, that wall of hostility... Is gone. You've been reconciled to the Father. You have peace with God. And that's exactly what it's saying. Through his death, his blood covered all of our sins. If we only trust him, they will no longer be held against us, and the wrath of God is turned away. That's what Paul meant when he said Christ reconciled us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All the hostility, all the enmity between us and God was absorbed on the cross. That is why Jesus can say to the disciples and to us, peace, peace be with you. You now have peace with God. That's why God sent Him, so that God's justice and wrath could be satisfied another way besides eternal punishment. God makes peace with us by substituting His Son's suffering for our penalty. Now we have peace between us and God. By the way, we also have peace between us and Jesus. Now Christ stands among us not as a judge, but as a friend. And what else? Remember last week? He said, go tell my brothers. That was the first time after He rose from the dead He called them brothers. Because now, now that we're not apart from God, we've been reconciled. Now we're in the family. Now He can look at you and say, Brother. He's not our judge. Now He's our friend and our brother. By the way, we also have peace between us and others who are in Christ. To be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to all who are reconciled to God. No racism, no sexism, no classism. Galatians 3.28 That's what this means. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Why? Because you are a new race. Right? Obviously, you're still... Scooter, you and I were talking about this, I think, this week. By the way, are you still... Are there still Americans and Russians? Sure. Are there still men and women? Sure. Are there still Jews and Gentiles? Sure. But what he's saying is, now that you're a Christian, that's not your identity anymore. Your identity <coughs> is, I am a, a child of God. First and foremost, that is who you are. That's who you are. Before you're white or black, before you're a man or a woman... Before you're a Jew or a Gentile or an American or Russian, you are a Christian. That is your identity. First and foremost, number one. Right? We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, so we're reconciled to one another. And by the way, peace with God, peace with Jesus, peace with one another, and also peace with ourselves. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we're talking about the peace of a clear conscience. How many people today labor under shame and regret and a defiled conscience for the things they've done? Christians should not have to do that. Um, now, by, by the way, does it doesn't mean we don't have to deal with our past st- sins. Um, doesn't mean that our past sins and the things we've done can't be painful, but they stop being paralyzing. Let me say that again. doesn't mean they're not painful, but they don't paralyze you anymore. Because that's not who you are. You're a new person. The, the pain of our past may not be taken away immediately, but the penalty is taken away, and that makes it possible to begin to heal and to move on with a hope-filled life while you, while you heal. So what a wonderful gift His peace is. But this is a gift, by the way, that we receive, or a better way to say it is we receive who? Him. So Paul said. He is our peace, right? Uh, if you have the risen, living Christ as your Savior and Lord and treasure and friend, you have the peace that He gives us, which is the peace uh, that He is. Romans 5.1 says, Since we've been justified by faith, because I'm a believer, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I said a, a few minutes ago that before Jesus says anything about power or purpose, He talks about peace. And, and the order is really important because, again, if we don't have peace with God... We can take all of his other gifts and and um, and try to make peace out of them, it, it never happens. Right? You try to take the power and make peace, you try to make purpose and make peace doesn't come. Peace always is is first, and everything else is the fruit of that. So Jesus goes on to say this I am sending you. Look at verse twenty-one. He says, Peace be unto you, and then he says this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is what? This is purpose. Here's the peace. Now I'm going to give you purpose. This is this is. You're not fishermen anymore, guys. You're not. This is not what you're. This is not what you're living for. This is what I'm, you're you're doing. I am sending you. I'm sending you to extend my peace and my light and my truth and my life into the world. Go out and glorify me. That's your, that's. By the way, that's our great purpose in the peace of God, to do the will of God for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let me read that again. In the peace of God, do the will of God for the glory of God and for the good of others. And then Jesus says this in verse 22. When He had said this, I'm sending you, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He gave us peace. He gives us purpose. And then how are we going to fulfill that purpose? By the way, we're a bunch of scared, fearful people in a locked room. And you just told me I'm supposed to go out there Uh, how am I going to do that? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. 49 days from that evening, uh, Jesus is going to pour out the Holy Spirit. This will be the source of their power and our power, their courage, our courage, their strength, and our strength. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do what we are simply not able to do on our own. He gives us the power. Now, here's a question. He, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Is he actually filling them with the Holy Spirit at that point in time? Okay. Yes or no? No. No, why not? How do you know that? Okay. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Okay. What? By the way, what's some evidence that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit? Anybody want to know? What was the, by the way what was the evidence think about it this way what was the evidence on the day of Pentecost that they had received the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues what else uh, boldness. boldness what did they do when they left the room they were bold witnesses they, they went out in the street and started what witnessing preaching witnessing they didn't care what nobody said by the way after this night <laughs> about eight days later he appears to them again you know where they are they in a locked room they still hid in the locker room. Indeed. Yeah. By the way, some commentators, when you read commentators on this, they actually contend that right now Jesus is actually giving them uh, the whole, either a full or partial anointing of the Holy Spirit. Others, which which I agree, insist there was no actual impartation of the Holy Spirit on that day. Rather, it's more of an acted out parable. He breathes on them a symbolic promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, regardless, the fact remains that the one of the principal concerns of the Son after the resurrection, I'm going to give you peace, I'm going to give you purpose, and I'm going to give you power. Those three things and to empower the church for the mission He initiated. Now at this point, we get a statement from Jesus that's caused people a lot of difficulty. And that is in verse 23. He said this, If you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is with hell. So the question that comes up, is Jesus really saying that the disciples, or you and I, can forgive sins? So let's start with that. Is Jesus telling the disciples that they can forgive sins? I think he's talking about themselves. No. Okay. That's always tough. It's a hard one, isn't it? By the way, the Catholic Church has taken this to say the apostles and their the and the and the and the inheritors uh, uh the uh, looking for the right word, but they've passed down that authority to the priest. So therefore, if you want your sins forgiven, you have to go to a man to do that, and that's the that's the scripture that they use to support that. Did they um, about when they. Let's read what it says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And by the way, that's true. If I forgive you, you're forgiven, right? You're forgiven from me, not necessarily from, from God. But, and he says if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now that's, that's an odd one there because we're not supposed to withhold forgiveness at all, are we? Okay. Um, so is he really saying the disciples can forgive sins? By the way, I want you to look past this. Is there any evidence anywhere else in the New Testament that the disciples ever forgive sins? Anywhere? Anywhere? Yes. When they, would they um, exercise the demons? don't they say your sins are forgiven? No. No. The cripple outside, outside the temple Paul... He 40 and, and he uh, celebrated and went into the- yeah he did but did they forgive his sin? No. It, so this is a tough one, right? Because if Jesus really meant you can forgive sins, you would have expected in somewhere in the New Testament you would have seen disciples forgiving sins. Yeah, but again, keep right what, what there. He's forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's exactly right. In fact, Jesus says, he uh, tells us, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. That's how serious he is. But he's saying right there, if you withhold forgiveness, well, that's that's almost against, we, we're not supposed to withhold forgiveness. This is a tough, tough verse. Um, for the blood, there is no yeah, so, so the way way way. what's the correct interpretation? Well, let's start As we always do. Let's try to interpret this. You always take a scripture in context of its passage that it's written in, right? And then you also take it in context of the whole Bible, right? You don't just look at a scripture and say, well, it means this. No, you look at the passage that it's written in, and then you also compare it to other scriptures. You let the Bible interpret the Bible. So let's start with what we know. First and foremost... The very core of the gospel is the truth that the way someone has their sins forgiven is by having faith in Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. Let me say that again. The very core of the gospel message, that the very foundation is the way that you have your sins forgiven, the way that I have my sins forgiven, is that we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Right? Uh, I'm, I, I wouldn't be fair of me to say that without scriptures Acts 10, 43-44 everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name what do you have to do to receive forgiveness of sins through his name? believe in him 1 John 5, 1-5 everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God in other words your sins have been forgiven you become a child of God what do you have to do? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Colossians two thirteen through 14 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God is made alive together with Him having forgiven us all of our sins. Who forgave us our sins? God. He made us alive. God forgave us of our sins. Mark 2, 7 Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's just four. I literally could have found fifty. Scriptures just telling us over and over and over and over again, God forgives sins. How do you get forgiven? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again. All of those passages, as well as others, confirms that Jesus is the one who forgives the sins of those who believe in Him. If we have genuine faith in Him, someone, you know, if I put my faith in Jesus, what sense does it make if I put my faith in Jesus and He's forgiven me, Later on, I can come to you and you can say, "Now nah, withhold that. Does that make any sense at all? Or why would you need to forgive me of what I've already been forgiven of? It, it doesn't, there's some problems right there. In fact, there are no other passages anywhere in Scripture that says that we can forgive someone's sin. We can forgive what they've done to us, but we cannot forgive in the place of God. We cannot absolve their sin. They have a responsibility to God. Everybody with me? There, there's no scripture anywhere. Just could mean it. We withhold the message of the Okay, so we'll, 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 we'll see here in just a second. But I want to make sure everybody's got this right. And by the way, nor do we ever see the apostles doing this or teaching this anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere. Okay, so I don't believe at all that's what Jesus meant—that you and I can forgive sins in place of God. Yes, everybody with me? I want to make sure we're clear. We can forgive you if you wrong me. If you steal from me, I can forgive you. But you still need to be forgiven by God. That sin is still on you. Everybody with me? Okay, I, I can I can forgive you what you've done to me. Bible, in fact, the Bible says very clearly, if we get hurt, what should we do? If something happens to us, what do we do? Do we take vengeance, by the way? No, what do we do? Leave vengeance to who? God. Turn the other cheek. Right? I love Pastor Henry told that story. Y'all remember the story he told? And I really, that story made an impact on me. Scooter and I were talking about it. The story of the guy that goes into, the the, the truck driver goes into the truck stop. Y'all remember that? And the the bikers are in there and they're harassing him and they mess with his food, spitting his drink, calling names, and he doesn't say anything. And then he... The, as he leaves, the waitress goes over and follows him out the door, and she's watching him go. And she comes back, and one of the bikers says, "Well, he ain't much of a man." And she said, well, "I don't know about that, but he ain't much of a truck driver because he just run over about twelve motorcycles <laughs> getting out." <laughs> and the point of the story was, we laugh because we love that, <laughs> don't we? Yeah, yeah. We love that. That boy, that gets that tickles our flesh. It's because we love, man, stick it to them people. Don't we? But that story is completely against Scripture. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Paul said in Romans, I think it's Romans 12, 9, never seek vengeance, but leave vengeance to the Lord. that story, we love it. We eat it up because our flesh eats it up. But it's completely against Scripture. And that, that, that story really made an effect on me. I thought, boy, that's, 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 that's exactly true. We eat that stuff up. Um, but the fact is it's against... I don't know why I even went there. That has nothing to do with this. So, so there are no passages anywhere in Scripture that says that we can forgive sins in place of God. No, by the way, nor do we ever see the apostles doing this or teaching this in any of their epistles. So what did Jesus mean in John 20, 23? Well, the key to understanding... The meaning of this verse lies in its context. First of all, let's look at it in context. Jesus comes into them. He wants to give them peace. He wants to give them purpose. And He wants to give them power. He says to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. Now, what what is He sending them to do? Spread Spread the gospel. He stood on the shore of Galilee and He said, Go into all the world. Preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. I'm sending you out to spread the gospel. So he says this, receive the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's going to give you power to to do that. And then he says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He sent them as he's sending us to bring the good news of the world to salvation, of the way to salvation in heaven to the whole earth. Jesus was leaving the earth physically, But he promised he would be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit living in them. And as they proclaimed the gospel, now here we go, they could honestly tell people who believed in their message that their sins were forgiven. And they could honestly tell people that did not believe in their message that their sins were not forgiven and that they stood condemned in God's eyes. John 3, 6 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see Him, for God's wrath remains on him. What he's saying is as you go out into the world with this purpose and with this power, you can honestly look at somebody and say, if you don't believe my message, if you don't believe this message, your sins remain on you. They are not forgiven. And you can honestly look at the next person and say, if you will believe this message, your sins are forgiven. So it's in the context... Everybody with me? It's in the context of the the gospel is that they're doing this. You may say, well, it's obviously saying that you have the right to say someone's sins are forgiving and someone else's aren't. And that's true. You absolutely have a right to say that someone who truly believes in Christ has their sins forgiven. You have the power and the right to say that. And you absolutely have the right to say to someone who does not believe in Christ... That they have not had their sins forgiven. That's what he's saying. Not that you as an individual have the right to stand in God's stead and forgive, but you have the right to say, it's this message. If you believe the message, if you put your faith in this crucified Savior, your sins are forgiven. And if you don't, your sins are not forgiven. Well, as Jesus intercedes for us with the Father, also told the apostles and his disciples that ask anything in my name that will be given to you. So we ask him to forgive so, so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in a we sense, right. In Christ with him, we have the same power. Yeah, but, in a, but, well, but keep in mind, if that person over here doesn't... You, you have your sins forgiven one way and one way on them. You must believe the gospel. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. If that person does not put their faith in Jesus Christ, I can forgive any of their actions against me, but the wrath of God, he said it right here, the wrath of God remains on them. There's nothing I can do about that. Right Now, can I pray for them? Can I ask them? to, you know, Father, would you please save them? But at the end of the day, that's between, that's between him and them. All right, let's move on. We've got to get out of here. You may say, we already did that one. Okay, Uh, let's read John. Let's read the rest of this. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, here we're talking about this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And the doors were what? (laughs) Locked. I don't think they'd received that Holy Spirit yet. Um, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, Peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas immediately answered, My Lord and my God. One quick note here again, as I mentioned earlier, some commentators don't believe or that when Jesus said, Receive the Holy Spirit, that they actually received it. And one of the reasons was eight days later, of course, they're still hiding, while on the day of Pentecost, they immediately went out in the streets and, and preached Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Now, I want to look at Thomas here as we close for just a few seconds. Thomas is, Thomas, when you go back and read about him, he is the proverbial pessimist. Okay? There's a couple of, Luke 11 or John 11, we saw this. You remember Lazarus, Jesus and his disciples are off are somewhere and Lazarus dies. Y'all remember that? And so he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea. They want to go back down to where Lazarus was. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? And Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. And Thomas, called the twin, said... Well, let's just go with him. We're all going to die. Right? He was the one. We're going to die. It's, it's over. Death. Well, we we'll us just go with him. We're going to die. You just see this in his personality. There's another one in John 14. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you I go to prepare a place? And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also... And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You know, he's just this, he's always, Jesus, Jesus has just given him these just wonderful words. And all Thomas is worried about is we don't, we don't even know how to get there. You know, he's just, he's always sees the negative. He's always thinks the worst is going to happen. By the way, just like a lot of us, he's exactly like, like most of us. What I love about this passage is even though Thomas is skeptical, He's pessimistic. He's, not the, he's less than a solid faith type of guy. The Lord meets him at his faithlessness. You see, that's how Jesus is. He never forsakes one of his own. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Timothy 2.13. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Let me read that again. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny deny himself. Even when our faith runs out of gas, God will come and meet you at your point of faithfulness, faithlessness and he'll lift you up again because he cannot deny his own. You belong to him. and He will never let you go. So even when you're at the bottom, he just comes right in that room, he comes into the fear, he comes into the trial, he comes into the test, into the tribulation, and he picks you right back up, even if your faith is hit rock bottom because he cannot deny himself. By the way, there's no evidence. Thomas said, unless I can stick my hand in the wounds, I will never believe. There is no evidence that Thomas ever followed through with this test. His faith, as weak as it was, when he saw the risen Savior, when he saw Jesus, he goes from a skeptic to making the greatest confession any man will ever make, my Lord and my God. And that is the confession of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ not you are Lord and your God he says my Lord and my God Jesus said to him have you believed Thomas because you've seen me blessed now this is talking about you and I blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe Jesus lays out a principle here it's one thing to believe when you've been an eyewitness but it's even a greater thing to believe when you haven't seen a thing and since the time of Thomas, there have literally been hundreds, thousands, millions who have believed in Jesus Christ without ever seeing. But listen, that's faith. That's the essence of faith. Hebrews 11:1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. It's the evidence of the Christian life. Second Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, We walk by faith, not by what we see. We don't walk by what we see with our eyes. We walk by what we believe in our heart. And that's what uh, faith is, is all about. Finally, Paul uh, John closes with this, adding his purpose, which we've talked about several times, verses 30-31. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But I've written these down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name. He lets us know, by the way, He didn't write everything down. He says... He did all these other things that I didn't write down. Um, he didn't write. He didn't set out to write an exhaustive biography. He picked certain things. These things that I wrote are written so that we may believe that Jesus is God, in order to have life. John says, "I want you to see He's alive. I want you to see He's the resurrection and the life that you might believe and that you might have life." Okay. All right. Let's pray. I want uh, everyone today, uh, if you will, Debbie. We're going to pray for you. Is that okay? Um, if you will, just lift out your hands toward Debbie. We got one of ours is going through some things, and we need to pray for her father. We just pray for our sister this morning, Lord. We pray, God. We thank you for her faithfulness uh, over these past years. We've watched her come in as a new believer, and we've watched her grow in this class. And and and, Father, now is a time in her life where all this stuff that used to be theology up on the screen now it becomes real. And so I pray, God, that you'll do something miraculous. And spirit i pray that you will take these words that just been words and you just make them real living manna to her heart and to her soul and to her life that they will become power to sustain her i thank you for this lesson today just as you walked into that room with those disciples in their fear and in the their indecision that you'll walk into her life this morning as i know you've already done into the test into the trial into the tribulation into the fear into the unknowing into all of that, and you'll be her Lord, you'll be her God, and you'll sustain her with the words of Scripture. Father, we thank you for uh, the Gospel of John. We thank you for chapter 20. We ask you to bless uh, the the final couple of weeks that we have together, Lord, in chapter 21. And Father, we just thank you for what you're going to do today in our service, and we just pray, Lord, that the words spoken there uh, will be verified by the Holy Spirit. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.